Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. In today's episode, our host, Dr. Lynn Kohick, is joined by Dr. Samantha L. Miller. Samantha is an assistant professor of theology at Whitworth University in Spokane. Her research interests are early church history and spirituality, and her human interests are canoeing, hiking, and everything outdoors. Samantha is the author of Chrysostom's Devil, Demons, the Will, and Virtue in Patristic Soteriology. Her most recent book published this year is titled John Chrysostom and African Charismatic Theology in Conversation, Salvation, Deliverance, and the Prosperity Gospel. Thanks so much, Samantha, for joining us today on Alabaster Jar. Thanks so much for having me. I feel like we're already friends, although we haven't met, because your opening line in your introduction of the uh, Chrysostom's Devil book is, when I was baptized in the United Methodist Church, and I went, wow, a fellow Methodist, I love that. And then you went on to describe how parents in that service renounce spiritual forces of wickedness and reject the evil powers of this world. And I thought, yeah, that that's exactly it. So I feel we have a we're already good friends uh, in our connection there with the church. Oh, lovely. Yes. Yeah. 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 But uh, I know that there's other things. I mean, the title itself is brilliant of your first book or, or the first book that we'll talk about. Um, how did you get interested in all of this spiritual forces, the devil? Um, what drew you? And also studying John Chrysostom. Yeah, um, the studying Chrysostom came first. The, the demons and the devil came came a little bit later. Um, when I was in high school, I had a sense of call to ministry. Um, I actually was you know, I wanted to be an astronaut, and like a freshman in high school, I, I had this sense that I couldn't shake that God was saying, "No, you're you're going to go be in ministry." And I like I was like, "But I really want to be an astronaut." Um, and and so went to college thinking, "Well, I'm going to study religion and history." I went to Hope College in West Michigan, small liberal arts school, and um, just thought pastor, that's what you do in your ministry. But I met these things called professors and thought, I really think that might be what I'm supposed to do. And so I was taking my middle year of college, I was taking uh, advanced Greek, we were reading the desert saints in Greek, and I was taking church history, and just fell in love with these people. And then we had a professor actually an alum of hope, who is actually teaching at my current institution now where Jerry Sitzer came and spoke with us about some stuff. And said, oh, I'm working with these pastors. We, we just read John Chrysostom's On the Priesthood. He says, the best pastoral theology work you can think of. And so, I was the kind of student who the next day went and read this and thought this will help me with my call. And I met this kindred spirit in John Chrysostom and just thought, oh my gosh, he's afraid of his call too. He doesn't want to do this either. He gets how much responsibility is involved in this. He talks about it like the uh, the preaching of the word, distributing the word and, and being a physician of souls and and that's like terrifying. And I was like, yeah, it is. It's great responsibility. So fell in love with Chrysostom and just have never looked back. And then in grad school was working toward figuring out what the dissertation was going to be. And it was actually a friend from church who's a nurse practitioner. And she said, well, what do you study? Like explain to me what this stuff is. And so I was like, okay, well, Chrysostom is, he's kind of like a fourth century Billy Graham. Like people come to hear him preach. They come from all over. And he just sort of he's known for that. And she says, Well, does he does he preach as much about hell as Billy Graham? I said, Well, yeah, kinda. But I was also reading his baptismal instructions at that time and these sermons about to the people who are about to be baptized. And 
and he's telling them, well, what you need to know about the Christian life is don't be afraid of the devil. So in all these places, he, he's telling people you have to fear hell, but then he goes on these long sections where don't ever fear the devil. And so I just started to play out, what's the difference there? Why, why should you not fear the devil? What's it about? And that just led me right into this. What does he do with this? Why is it when he talks about demons, he's not actually talking about demons as much as talking about virtue. And so that led into the work that was my dissertation that then got revised and turned into this book. Oh, and it's a great book. I, I highly recommend it. It's from InterVarsity Press. Um, it, it's terrific. And as, um, you know, I, I have a little bit of knowledge of the time of Chrysostom, um, but I'm sure there's some fat, I'm sure, you know, you could fill us in a little bit more on just what were, what were his congregations thinking about, especially re related to suffering and evil and the devil and fearful? You know, what, what was kind of the mindset that he was preaching into? Yeah. Um, in some ways, it's not that different from what mm -hmm. we think of now in terms of, in terms of the question of suffering, right? The main question was still there's suffering that's happening in the world. Why is it happening if God loves us? And and so everyone's still asking this, and that's actually where a lot of his stuff on demons starts. So it's it's because he gets into well, we can talk about that a little bit later, but it uh, gets into like what what is suffering, what is, whether suffering is evil or, or not. But but that's a big question for people that they're they're experiencing the world as a rough place the same way that we are. I mean, those of us who just came through, I mean, we all just came through this pandemic, and some of us in the world are still very much in it. We know that suffering is really real, in in very embodied ways. Um, we have more technology to pretend that we are more in control of the world than we are. They had less technology. They were less enamored with being in control of the world. Um, they felt it more as chaos sometimes. And so um, the world was one where, I mean, even just in terms of poverty, maybe the top 10% of people had money. And then the bottom 10% of people were just destitute. I mean, they're sort of the sort of homeless, but the 90, the 80% in between were always one step from being destitute. It wasn't like there was this middle class or something. So the vast majority of people are just trying to survive every day. And so, um, you know, if you break a leg, things are really bad. Um, you're, you could, you could die from that. Um, the world seems much more dangerous than than we th than it seems to us, although it is still fairly dangerous. But weather patterns, he's got sermons after an earthquake happens and everyone's asking, why did this earthquake happen? So in those terms, it's, it's the same. What's a little bit different is depending on what tradition you come out of, um, you may have different beliefs about demons. So for Chrysostom's world, I mean, the world of the fourth century, everyone just believed that demons were a thing. They just existed. And so... Um, and that's true for the pagans, for the Jews, and for the Christians, who are the main, who are the groups that are there. And uh, there, there's some. There, the world is populated by spirits, good, bad. For the pagans, there were some that were neutral, um, but these these spirits could in in inf influence the material world. They could cause illness or destruction or anything. And so that's the question. That's sort of the additional layer of the question. It's not just why is there suffering, but is like, are demons behind it? Or is God behind it? And how does that work? And what's going on? So those are the questions they're asking, just like us. Um, and then sort of in terms of some more technical stuff, Chrysostom is just, he's preaching just after the church has decided at Nicaea and Constantinople that God is three persons in one nature and all these sorts of technical theological discussions. So 
we're in Christianity is pretty well established. It's, it's the state religion at this point. Um, and so people are going, they're not being persecuted anymore. Um, and yet these questions are still very real just as they are for us. No, absolutely. And so how does, uh, how does Chrysostom then, does he, does he reassure his congregants? Does he challenge them, um, warn them? I mean, what, what does he, how does he handle this very real uh, uh, environment that, that they all live in? He does both, um, both, both challenges and reassures. So he's almost got a two-pronged um, way of talking about this where he'll say, yes, there are demons, but those of you who think the demons are in control of the world, you're wrong. They are not in control of the world. God is in control of the world. Therefore, you don't have to fear them. And then there are others who say, you're just not taking them seriously enough. Demons are like a real, they're, they're also tempting you. And so you need to take them seriously as well. And so there's, there's this both. Um, he's, he can be super pastoral. He could also be super harsh. I had students read one of his letters this semester and they were like, this is not the same guy who wrote the other things. He is. He can be. He can be very pastoral, and he can be very. Um, he didn't suffer fools wisely, or right, he, or gladly, right. He was gladly, yeah. Like I, I get, I get along with him fairly well. He was a very intense person, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, he. The famous th- story is that he he would call out the empress who was in his congregation in Constantinople, and he would call her out for her sins in the congregation in the sermons, um, which of course leads to his exile and death, but. Like he's not afraid to call people out for stuff. So he can be really reassuring in this. He's one one of the prongs of his stuff with demons is to say, yes, they are they are here, but they are powerless. So you're afraid of what they can do. You're afraid that they can drag you to hell. But in fact, they can't. They they are uh, like they're powerless before God. They are God is more powerful, and God has made the universe such that they can do nothing without God's permission. And he leans on the story of Job a lot in all of his discourses on demons and suffering, which makes sense. Right. And and so it's, it's, they can't do anything without God's permission. And then he says, and, and therefore you don't have to fear them because that means you are more powerful than them as well because you can resist them. They can't actually make you do anything. And that's sort of the crux of this. Yeah. Yes. And I have to say, well, and we'll move to this. We talk about virtue um, and and how you develop that, but I have to say, uh, in that as, that segue into talking about virtue, as I was looking at your um, at your work, and I had in a totally different context seen uh, a historical uh, reference to a fellow by the name of Flip Wilson. Does that resonate with you at all, Flip Wilson? I, I know a comedian. I think in the seventies. Yeah. Yes, I know. So I'm dating myself. Uh, uh, to to you both and to all of our listeners, but uh, Flip Wilson used to do this skit, and he had this uh, this character he would he would enter called uh, Geraldine, I think was her name, um, and she would always complain about how the devil made me do it, right? And so he would, you know, you just bought a new dress. Well, I didn't want to, you know, go into that dress store, but then all of a sudden the devil just shoved me into the dress store. You know, and the devil wanted me to try. I didn't want to try it on. And the devil just, you know, and so <laughs> everything that uh, that happens that maybe her husband is not happy with. She said, it's not me. It's the devil. The devil made me do it. And I just remember as a little kid watching those skits and just laughing. In fact, I went on YouTube and watched one again and laughed just as hard. Um, 
but that uh, so you can have humor and Chrysostom in uh, you know in in the same moment. Um, but you know she she uses that excuse, and my guess is that Chrysostom would have nothing of that kind of excuse. Is that right? <laughs> that, that's exactly it, right? And in fact, his he's got this treatise called "That Demons Do Not Govern the World," and his whole thing is they're trying to say he's like some of you in the congregation are saying the devil made me do it. Like the the devil has caused this or that sin, and he's like, no, really, the devil did not make you do that, and the demons are not running the world. God is. Um, so yeah, it's exactly what he's arguing against. But then he pushes it even more and says, here's here's your responsibility in all of this, right? And that's yeah. kind of the second, the other side of the coin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Talk yeah. to us so a little about that. So then that's where it goes. Um, he says, yeah. Um, you, the devil can't make you do anything because you have this, he, he's got a technical term called pro that he uses. It's, for him, it's pretty technical. Um, but it just means the faculty of choice, that there's something in us that, um, that, that, that nothing else can touch that is ours. So I'll call it free choice, but there's a sense of free choice. And, and the only reason I'm not saying free will is because that sort of confuses with Augustine and some of the later debates and stuff. And he's not involved with that because he's too early, but, um, this free choice is in us and nothing can touch it. And so he says, so therefore you have responsibility because God wouldn't, but God is just. So God won't punish us for anything we didn't do. And so if the devil made, the devil actually made you do it, then you couldn't be responsible for it. He says, but you have free choice. So you are responsible. So God can't punish or God can praise when you're virtuous, when you do things, because God also wouldn't, why would God reward you or praise you for something that you didn't do yourself or didn't choose? So, this choice is the the reason for moral responsibility for him. And that's where he really pushes on it. So every time he's talking about demons with his congregation, it's less about like what they are, where they come from. And it's way more about, look, they can't make you do anything. So therefore you have a responsibility to be virtuous. So he really wants to turn around and say, look, so then like take that as encouragement. Um, it's a very backhanded encouragement, but encouragement all the same to say, look, you they can't stop you from being virtuous. So stand tall, spit on the devil, and and like be virtuous. Do the good things. And so he goes over and over and over on this. You know, and as I was looking at, because uh, you quote him a, a lot in the book in, in a good way, right, to really let his voice come out there. And you make a point at the end how it's very important to not see Chrysostom as somehow arguing for what we might call today works righteousness or something, um, you know, that somehow we're quote unquote earning our salvation. Can you talk a little bit about how, how he's trying to present virtues that avoid us thinking we're doing uh, our own salvation? Yeah. Yeah. So the reason virtue is so important to him, the reason he's even going on about this and it's the reason scholars have always said he's just a moralist. He wants to preach about virtue. He's more sophisticated than that, but, um, but he does, he preaches about virtue all the time and it's because virtue is part of salvation for him. Um, and so for those of us post-reformation, we do, we get this, like, especially those of us Protestants, like it's, it's not works righteousness. Um, my Catholic friends, while I was writing this, are like, what do you, why is this an issue? And I was like, it's cause I'm a Protestant. Cause my Protestant <laughs> students are going to have some problems. Um, it's this cooperative salvation that he's got this idea. So Christ has done all of the major parts of salvation, Christ's life, incarnation, life, death, ministry, resurrection. Those are not in the right order, but Christ, Christ as Christ event has done all of the major parts of, of salvation. He's done the heavy lifting, if you will. Um, but we have to participate 
God doesn't want us to just sit around then and wait to like go to heaven or something. He says, no, you, so you're not earning your salvation, but you're participating. You're showing that you care about this. Um, you're showing your love for God and your love for neighbor in this. And, and that matters as part of salvation. He says, don't neglect your salvation. Um, probably the best way I've ever heard it said was one of my professors in grad school was a Jesuit. And he said, well, God does all the work, but we have to sweat. And I thought that's, that's sort of Chrysostom on this, actually. That, that, yeah, that, that actually, that's a wonderful word picture. Um, yeah, so uh, that's maybe one lesson even today that we can take from uh, Chrysostom. Um, what might be some other lessons from him that you see applicable even today? And this may lead in, even into your new work on African charismatic theology. Yeah, so that'll be the second point I want to talk about. The, f- the first other one that I that I think is really important today is in our sense of polarization. Chrysostom would actually want to speak to this a little bit, both in the church and in society and politics. Um, and in the church, as I mean, as Methodists, we know that the church is sometimes prone to uh, issues and splits and other sorts of vitriolic rhetoric. Um, and he would, and there's there's a lot behind that is this fear. It's like this fear of the other and or demonizing of the other. And Christian would want to turn that around and say, look, stop maybe fearing the other. Fear yourself. You're the only one because the other side of this responsibility bit is you're not only are you the only one responsible for your virtue, but being responsible for your sin means like you're the only one who can hurt that. So if someone says something to you that is hurtful, it's terrible, but it's not endangering your salvation. Now, if you then, if you say something about someone else or vilify or demonize or, or worse, get become violent or something, then in fact, you're, you're endangering your own salvation. So his very harsh um, example is Cain and Abel. He says, look, Abel, Abel's in, Abel was not really harmed by being murdered, which by which he means his salvation was not endangered, um, which we want to take a little bit of. Maybe we should think about that in some nuanced ways, but um, he says it wasn't. But Cain endangered his own salvation by doing the act. And so I think in, in all this discussion, it's really important to stop and think about what am I doing in this? How am I participating? And in what ways am I maybe hurting my virtue and therefore neglecting my salvation or hurting, endangering these things that God has done for me and, and wants to give me, but I might be removing myself from that grace a little bit. Um, not permanent again that like the protestants go oh, you can't remove yourself from grace but yeah right that there's something in we're that. to imitate we're to imitate god uh ephesians 5 1 and 2 we're to imitate god and love as christ loved us i mean that that's it's just absolutely clear in scripture and and we are to follow after and model christ in in all that so if that's where Chrysostom is going. We are to put on Christ. I mean, all these things, as you mentioned earlier, about participation in Christ's life as, I mean, Paul's pretty serious at the beginning of Ephesians 5, right? You know, with uh, entering into the kingdom of Christ and of God, you know, that certain behaviors that are representative, you know, of, of people's mindset and heart are not uh, consistent with the mindset that uh, believers are to have, and Paul's confident that the Ephesians, you know, aren't there. Uh, but he probably had a little bit of a doubt because <laughs> he brought it up, you know, to begin with. So, yeah, I think I think that it's a. I love that that observation of Chrysostom because I do think I know I can kind of get carried away with what I think is righteous indignation and might only be self righteousness. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. 
Yeah. So yeah, just like paying attention to what we're doing and less about what people are doing to us. Right. So, and I'm really attentive to then to when people say, or when I want to say, they made me do that. Well, if the devil can't make you do it, another human certainly can't make you do it. So it's like, what are you doing? What is your response? Is it, I mean, it might be suffering, but is it endangering your salvation? in the way. And so are you, how are you imitating Christ and participating in this? Yeah. So that's the first one. And then the second thing that I, that I think, I mean, there's so many, but the second thing we'll talk about is um, there's this really interesting uh, movement of theology, deliverance theology, and then uh, prosperity gospel is the other side of that. Um, And these are in the U S as well, but I've done some work now on um, the African context, especially thinking Christianity in the global South is growing way faster than it's growing in the North global North. And so and, and then one of the major things that those of us, at least like non-charismatic Westerners get caught up trying to have conversation with our brothers and sisters in the global South tends to be that these folks are really okay with demons. They want to talk about demons doing things all the time, demons uh, oppressing us or causing this problem or that problem, these misfortunes or sufferings and as, as their answer to this theodicy question. And and Westerners get really like tense real fast. No, demons don't exist. We don't do that. We, we definitely don't talk about that. Uh, unless you're in the charismatic branches. And, and so what, and I just thought, what can we, like Chrysostom can actually help us talk with these people because Chrysostom's cosmology is more similar to the cosmology in the, in the global South, that sense of he believes that demons exist, that they're a real thing. He just takes it for granted the same way they do. And that's not to say that they're more, that the global South is more primitive or that Christendom was like, it's just to say there are some cultural intersections that make this conversation possible. And it also means that Christendom is someone that both of these groups really respect. And so he's, he's a nice bridge figure. And what he does in having this conversation is to say, well, maybe there's other theological issues underneath or related to this question of demons that we could be spending our time talking about. How can we have conversations about moral responsibility, which is attached, or salvation, which is attached? All of these other aspects can come out. So it started with this, let's have a conversation. What can we do for missionaries, for um, church leaderships, denominations that have global connections, um, just lay people who are interested? Um, And so then it's the African charismatic part that I'm focusing on are deliverance and prosperity gospel. So deliverance is this ministry for folks who have been oppressed by demons. It's, it's like a low level possession. It's, they're not, they're not actually taken over. It's that the devil is sort of plaguing them, haunting them and, and doing uh, all sorts of suffering and misfortunes to them. And then and you, if would, I, sorry, and if I could just interrupt, no, 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 I'm sorry. But it just, as you just said that, I thought I, I lived for three years in, um, in Kenya and now, just as you said that, it, I was taken back to a, a time when I did have, a, as a very sincere question uh, posed to me by uh, one of my uh, Kenyan neighbors, do you believe that Christians can be oppressed by, uh, by the devil, by Satan? And I thought, you know, I've never had that question asked me before. So, yes, it is. You're absolutely right that 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 is a, a, dis, a distinction between our, our Christian communities right now and Chrysostom being a bridge builder is a great, or bridge figure is a um, great observation. Yeah. So I just, yeah. So this, and then deliverance ministry is this sort of low level exorcism. Deliverance is like a low level exorcism to, to rid these, to, to expel these demons from these people, from people's lives and the, the misfortunes that they're causing. Um, and so what is, what would Chrysostom say to these folks? And I think 
it depends on which group you're talking about, even in deliverance ministry, in terms of whether they believe that the demons are causing sin or not, but that whether they believe it is or not is showing you their anthropology and showing you whether they think humans have choice in that. And so that's a place we can all talk about. What is our responsibility? What is virtue? Uh, at some point, you'll still come back around and you'll hit a stalemate with a demon question. But Chrysostom gets us in to say, look at all this other stuff that's attached, responsibility and virtue and salvation. Um, and so the deliverance is actually just a really interesting, because I think Chrysostom would be on board with that. He would be like, yeah, of course you can expel demons. Of course you can, like, we have power over them. And um, and yet also make sure that you're not just like saying this is a demon when it's really your responsibility. So he wants us to, to be more discerning. And then the prosperity gospel is the other side of that, which is to say, well, if God, like, if these misfortunes are all demons because God wants good for us, then it's, well, God wants good for us. So we should have material wealth and health as that's that's what God desires and intended for us. And Chrysostom is an interesting figure on that one because he's like always preaching about giving away all your money. And so he's very much anti-prosperity gospel. But it's the same sorts of what is salvation for him? I mean, that's that question, that conversation really highlights what does he think salvation is and is about? And is it really just that God wants good things for us? Like I was just joking with my housemate the other day, we, it's been really hot here in Spokane for quite a while now. And we had like two really beautiful days and we were able to get raspberries and raspberry picking. And I was like, does Jesus love us? Cause he made it cool enough to bake a pie. And my housemate just said, maybe, maybe not that maybe don't tell your students that kind of theology. Yeah, no, and certainly don't let your, uh, your colleagues know that's your theology, right? right? <laughs> um, like it's not, it's not how it works, but yeah, there right. was, the, but that would be the prosperity gospel sense of just like Jesus wants all the easiest stuff for us. And so of course he well, manipulates situations that way. Yeah. And at the, uh, kind of the, uh, experience that I had with prosperity gospel um, on the other side of that is if I don't have that, then God must be unhappy with me. And so it ends up when suffering happens, just because it happens, right? Then somehow God doesn't love me. So if I don't have it, then um, God's abandoned me. And that, uh, I think it's a real scourge um, uh, across the globe, the prosperity gospel, because it so misrepresents who God is, Um to those who need to hear his love most. Yeah, absolutely. And then and then that's the question, because Christendom is so much on the suffering. He'll say, look, but the suffering isn't damning you. It, it's not causing your, like, it doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. In, in fact, you, yeah, you use, he, you talk about how he, he uses, for, well, these are your terms. I don't know if they're Christendom's, um, true harm versus mm-hmm. apparent harm. Can mm-hmm. you, unpack that. Maybe that'll help us a little. Yeah. So yeah, those are Chrysostom's, I mean, the translations of Chrysostom's um, that he'll talk about. And and he's actually borrowing from like stoic categories, even more stoicism to say there's true harm, which is anything that can endanger your salvation, which for him is, is a really small category. It's actually only sin. Sin is the only thing that actually endangers your salvation. And so that's anything that sin is actually true harm. So it's apparent harm is anything that only that seems to be harmful, but which isn't really because real harm would be that that endangering salvation. So, so your earthquakes, um, uh, illnesses, unemployment, these things, these are these sufferings that are real. Su- he like he calls them real sufferings. They're not. He's not trying to diminish them, but to say that even though they are this suffering, they are not hurting your soul. 
or they don't have to hurt your soul. They are, you're still in charge of that. You're still doing something toward salvation. Um, that isn't going to, going to separate you from God. doesn't have to. And so that gets at this, then the prosperity gospel issue that you're just raising about if, if I'm suffering, that must be my fault. And Christism says, no, that's because that's not, that's not real evil. That's not, it's suffering, but it's not actually harming you. And so, and, and so it's not that. So if he was going to preach at your church as a visiting pastor, um, and he said, well, what, what do you think your congregation needs to hear most? And I'm, I'm speaking hypothetically, so I'm not calling out your church at all, <laughs> Samantha no. here, but, you know, a church in, in the U.S., um, what would you ask Chrysostom to focus on? Or what do you think he would say as you described the congregation? What would he say? Okay, this is what I need to in, uh, reiterate. Oh, that's a great question. Um, I'm just going to have to go with like generic U.S. congregation because I've, I've only just moved to Spokane a year ago and we've been online all year. So I haven't actually found a church yet. Um, but so, I, or rather, I don't know a, con- a specific congregation well enough. So what would he say to a, a congregation in the U.S.? Um, I mean, part of it, I think he would really want to talk about that polarization thing. I think he would really want us to focus on our sin, especially. And I think, I actually feel like he would have two, right? So you've got the sort of the churches that are really focused on doing like good all over the world that are, that are really focused on sort of justice and good works. And, and this is really important stuff. And he would want to correct them in the direction of, um, okay, but are those injustices hurting your soul? Um, like what is, when you're yelling then at the other congregations, are you not maybe sinning? Are you not maybe doing something? So maybe a little bit more attention to what you do in the way that you interact with these other people. And then to the congregations that are really all about their sort of personal sanctification or whatever, he would probably say more like, yeah, but there are people dying right outside your church. Go take care of them. Um, Because he's got both those poles in his preaching already. Um, He's always telling them, look, you passed the beggars on your way into church and you didn't give them any money, really. Um, that's a big one for him. You have to take care of the people around you. You have to love your neighbors. And he's got all of this personal virtue bit and saying that's also really important. So I think depending on the church he came into, but there, there tends to be two broad generalizations there. I think he would correct in one way or another. Yeah. It sounds like he is really, uh, he's relevant for us, for us all. Are there, uh, for our listeners who, um, want to take the plunge into some of his works? Can you think of one or two that we might, because I assume there's most of the stuff we can just Google it and there's going to be some English translation on online. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, if you're looking, I've got two that I always recommend. So if you're looking for like pastoral theology, if, if you're, if you're a listener who <clears throat> is going into ministry or is in ministry or something, it's, it's his on the priesthood because it really is this beautiful pastoral theology. Uh, what is it that you're doing as a pastor? Um, for anyone, I always recommend his baptismal instructions. They're maybe the most beautiful description of what it means to live a Christian life that I've ever heard. Um, and it's just, it's, and I use it with my students pretty free undergrads pretty frequently, and they all love it as well. They just get this, I can't believe someone ancient would be this beautiful. I'm like, yeah, well, it, it's also a decent translation, an accessible translation, which helps. Um, it's a, the uh, Ancient Christian Writers series has just a really helpful 
volume or translation of it. Um, But it's, it's 12 sermons that he gives to the people in the church about to become Christians, about to be baptized and enter the church. And he's like, this is what it means to be a Christian. You struggle with the devil. You struggle with yourself. You, um, God takes you on as bride um, and, and doesn't care how ugly you are and in your sin and washes it away. And it's just, he just goes on and on and it's just beautiful and inspiring because, you know, all about the virtue still. Wow. That, that sounds fabulous. And I'm excited to, to get those ancient Christian writers, mm-hmm. that, that series, which is an excellent series. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you for just sharing your love of Chrysostom and, uh, and your insights on a fascinating, fascinating angle that is sounds maybe at first blush kind of distant from us, but actually is so contemporary. Thank you so. for having me. It's been delightful yeah. to chat with you. Yeah, well, thank you so much and best wishes on your second year, hopefully in person now, right? Instead of just online uh, at Whitworth College. Wish you all the best. uh, We're talking in July, but semester will start soon enough. It will. (laughs) (laughs) Ready or not. Right. Yeah. Thank you again so much, Samantha. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to another episode of the Alabaster Jar podcast. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Dr. Samantha Miller, be sure to check out her books, Chrysostom's Devil by InterVarsity Press, and her most recent work, John Chrysostom and African Charismatic Theology. You can check out links to both of those books below in the podcast description, and we hope you'll join us right back here again next week for another episode. 